Quick geometry is oral geometry. Mathematicians memorize theorems the way bards memorize poems. Euclid's Elements was almost like a songbook or the script of a play. It was something the connoisseur was meant to memorize, internalize, word for word, verbatim. And in fact, we can see this most clearly in purely technical texts, believe it or not. Not from uh, whatever stories and from history books, but no, from the actual proofs of Euclid's Elements. That is where we find the most compelling testimony regarding this cultural practice. So it sounds almost paradoxical that these technical texts could tell us such things, but I'm sure it will convince you, in fact. So it is indeed the case that the surviving documentation about ancient Greek geometry consists almost entirely of formal uh, treatises, very stilted, very dry texts, definition there and proof, uh, very pedantically written, you know, they were worse than modern mathematicians on this, and that's saying something, isn't it? They're highly standardized, formalized, completely void of any kind of personality. Where is the flesh and blood? Where are the hopes and dreams? The lived experience of the Asian geometry. You look in vain uh, in these texts for that uh, type of information. It's as if these authors must have been determined somehow to erase any traces of all of those things, leave only a logical skeleton uh, behind. However, it's still not as hopeless as it would seem. At first glance, you think, oh, well, these texts, they have been scrubbed of all humanity. In fact, though, if we read between the lines, we can extract quite a bit of information. Uh, there are implicit clues in these texts that reveal more than the authors intended. And that's our topic for today, then. How these seemingly purely logical texts actually say quite a lot about the social context in which they were produced. So one thing we learned this way is that we should think of Greek geometrical tradition as uh, spoken geometry, not written geometry. So today we think of written texts as the primary manifestation of mathematics. When mathematicians disseminate their ideas, the published article is the official, definitive, primary expression of those ideas. The mathematician crafts a written document with the expectation that uh, reading the text on paper is going to be the primary way in which people will access this material, those ideas. But not so in antiquity. Oral transmission was considered the primary mode of explaining mathematics. Written documents were a last resort when personal contact was not possible. And the written document was not meant to be a primary exposition in its own right. Writing was instead merely the oral explanation uh, put down on paper so, or papyrus at that time. Uh, or in any case, it must have been like that in the early days because there are many conventions of Greek mathematical writing that only make sense from this point of view. They must have been formed in an oral mathematical culture. Probably in later antiquity, the situation was not so clear-cut. Uh, maybe writing gradually became more of a thing in its own right instead of merely a record of, uh, of oral exposition. But even then, the uh, conventions of written mathematics remained fixed. The Greek mathematics never liberated itself from these conventions that had been set in an oral culture. They lived on, and probably in part due to tradition, conservatism, but probably also because the oral element remained a significant part of mathematical culture. And especially in teaching, probably, one might guess. Here's one example of this. 
I've taken this example here from uh, Raville Nett's book, The Shaping of Deduction in Greek Mathematics. Consider this uh, equation. A plus B equals C plus D. Here's how the Greeks expressed this in writing. The A and the B taken together are equal to the C and the D. This is uh, written as one single string of all caps letters. There's no punctuation, no spacing, no indication of where one word stops and the next one begins. So a Greek text is basically a tape recording. It records the sounds being spoken. There's a letter of the alphabet for each sound one makes when speaking. The scribe just stenographically puts down these sounds one after the other. So from this point of view, there's no distinction between upper or lowercase letters. You know, a letter is just a sound. That's it. So the sound A, I, but uh, you know, so there's no uh, such uh, typographical uh, distinctions. Don't make any sense. Likewise, no punctuation, no separation of words. Those are not spoken sounds. You know, the writing means write down the symbol for the sound being spoken. Therefore, there is no, you know, all these uh, non-sound uh, things like uh, periods and commas and and uh, different capitalization. Those are not sounds, so they don't go in the text. That's why they write everything as a single string. Of course, the it also follows from that point of view that there are certainly no mathematical symbols like plus signs, equal signs. Those are, uh, of course, not, do not uh, occur in purely spoken discourse, so therefore they're not going to occur in this kind of, of a tape recording uh, record, sound record of, of the spoken explanation. And the only way to understand a text like that is to read it out loud. You have to read it the way a, a child uh, learns to read, you know, when they're just learning to, to read for the first time. You sound out the letter uh, one at a time. Uh, you say, this letter is an A, that letter is an A. And then you interpret uh, the sounds rather than interpreting the writing directly. You don't recognize the word, you just uh, play them out out loud and then you hear what is supposed to mean rather than see what is supposed to mean by interpreting the letters so uh, the Greeks uh, they had a very limited conception of writing they thought of writing only as a way of recording speech they completely missed uh, the opportunities that writing provides when it is embraced as a primary medium in its own right rather than just a record of speech writing is a better way of representing equations, for example, as we now know, than speech. But the Greeks, they completely missed this opportunity. They were stuck in the limited notion of writing as a recorded sounds, so they lost out. And I like to compare this with early movies. You think of the classic movies from like the 1950s or something like that. They're basically recorded stage plays. There are these limitations inherent in the medium of theater. The, the actors, they have to speak quite loudly, very articulately, to be heard by the audience in the back of the theater. They have special training for this. And the scenery on the stage, it cannot be easily be changed or moved. So in a play, you better stick to one or two sets, like the interior of a room, for example. And you can set that up very carefully. You can have carefully arranged furniture, stuff on the walls, uh, and so on. Uh, however, because you can't change it, uh, you will have to have uh, 
large part of the play take place in one single setting like that. So those are technical limitations that constrain the artistic freedom of the playwright who is uh, coming up with a story. Uh, you, somehow he has to craft the story in such a way that all the various characters have some reason or other to come and go into this single room that was uh, necessary for the stage arrangement. And uh, once they're in this room, they have to have these loud conversations that drive the plot, all emotional depth, uh, everything you want to convey, it has to be uh, conveyed in this particular form through these dialogues and this, and this fixed location. So those things became second nature to writers. So when the film came around, they kept doing the same thing, even though that was no longer necessary because the film gives you new... Uh, freedoms and those technical limitations are no longer applicable nevertheless many treated film still as simply a way of recording plays so in early movies you have a lot of these static scenes you have the fixed camera one end of a room you have characters coming and going having these loud conversations film gives you new artistic possibilities you are no longer limited to the static camera showing a fixed set uh, the way the audience of a theater will be looking through the fourth wall of a room. you know, uh, Instead, you have uh, all these new options to convey things visually instead of being limited to these strongly articulated stage dialogues as the only driver of the plot. But many early movies, they didn't take advantage of that. They just kept doing what they had always been doing at the theater and it just recorded that, just put a film camera in front of it and do the same thing as before. So they saw the new medium of film merely as a way of bottling existing practice, what they were doing already. It's, it's, uh, the film was treated as just a storage medium. They didn't consider that the new medium was in some ways better than the old one. It enabled you to do completely new things. So it was the same with writing in antiquity. Writing was merely for storing speech. They failed to take advantage of the ways in which writing could not only preserve existing uh, cognitive practice, but in fact transform it and improve it. So, for example, working with equations symbolically, this is something that's made possible by writing. It wasn't possible before. And in the same way, uh, you know, you're, they're missing the, the, the artistic freedoms made available through the new medium, just as the early uh, filmmakers did to some extent. And uh, here's another consequence of this, uh, the absence of cross-referencing in, in uh, Greek mathematical texts. If a mathematical text is like a tape recording, you can't easily access a particular place in the tape. The only way to make sense of the text is to hit play, as it were, the play button, and it starts to, uh, you start to, to speak it, to translate it back into sounds. Only then can you understand what the text is saying. So you have a fast-forward and a rewind button, so to speak, like an old-fashioned tape recorder, so, which corresponds to the fact that you can start reading at any point in the manuscript, flip ahead, flip back. However, you can't turn to a particular place, like Theorem 8 or something like that. You would have in a modern book, you would have these... They would be typographically very clear where you would have labels like theorem 8 chapter 5 etc you don't have that in these old texts just as you don't have that on a on a on a tape recorder like those tape recorders you had in the 80s you know you just it sounds when you're fast forwarding you don't know 
which when you hit play where you are exactly it's just going to start playing sounds and you have to figure out from context the location in the in the narrative or, or the context of the tape so we see this reflected in euclid and the modern editions of euclid elements they are full of cross references each step of the proof is justified by a parenthetical reference to a previous theorem or definition postulate those those things are inserted by later editors the original text doesn't have anything like that it, and it makes sense if you think of it as a tape recording of a spoken explanation then referring back to you know theorem 8 or something like that that doesn't make any sense that would only make sense if the audience had a written document in front of them if they are listening to a long lecture or a tape recording of a lecture then there's no way of referring back to for example theorem 8 uh, because the audience, they have no way of going that back specifically to one particular place in the exposition, like they would have if it was typographically in a written document. You could make uh, the labels and theorems very clear, but not in an audio file. So for this reason, oral mathematics involves committing a lot of material to memory. This is a well-known phenomenon in the arts, of course, where people memorize poems, song lyrics... Actors memorize dialogues of plays. Ancient mathematics was like that as well. You would learn to recite theorems the same way you learn to sing along to your favorite song. And this aspect of the oral culture thoroughly shaped the way Asian mathematical texts are written. Euclid's Elements, many other texts, they, they follow a certain stylistic template that at first sight it seems quite irrational, but it starts to make sense when you consider the, this oral context. So, for instance, let's look at uh, Proposition 4 of Euclid's Elements, the side-angle-side-triangle-congruence theorem. Very typical theorem. I'm just picking one at random here to make this point, which you can illustrate this point uh, with any given uh, theorem from Euclid. So let's have a look at this uh, theorem, uh, Proposition 4. Euclid has a, a certain template how he, how he does this stuff with all the propositions. First comes the statement of the theorem in purely verbal terms. So it goes like this in the case of Proposition 4. I quote Euclid here. If two triangles have two sides equal to two sides respectively and have the angle enclosed by the equal straight lines equal, then they will also have the base equal to the base and the triangle will be equal to the triangle and the remaining angles subtended by the equal sides will be equal to the corresponding remaining angles. So that's the statement of the, the theorem. So that's quite easy to recognize. Modern mathematical terms, you know, the two triangles, they have side angle, side equal. Uh, given that, it follows that they also have all these other things equal. So the remaining side is equal, the remaining angles are equal, and the area is equal as well. The word area does not occur in the proposition, but Euclid says uh, the triangle will be equal to the triangle. By this he means that they have equal area. That's his, his language for that. So after Euclid has stated this purely verbal statement of the theorem, he goes on to restate the theorem again, the same thing. Make the same statement, but with reference to the diagram. Of course, it, the, all propositions come with uh, a picture. Now, here's the Euclid's state restatement of the theorem. He's now going to state the side-angle-side theorem again, but in different language. And he says it like this. Let ABC and DEF be two triangles having the two sides AB and AC equal to the two sides DE and DEF respectively. 
AB to DE and AC to DF. And the angle BAC equal to the angle EDF. I say that the base BC is also equal to the base EF and triangle ABC will be equal to triangle DEF and remaining angles subtended by the equal sides will be equal to the corresponding remaining angles, namely ABC to DEF and ACB to DFE. So that's a long-winded thing. It's exactly the same thing that you just said in words. So he's just saying all of that stuff again, but referencing the diagram. He, so Euclid always does this, you know. He always has these two versions of every proposition, the purely verbal one and then the one full of letters that refers to the diagram. So for simple propositions, you can understand the value of both of these formulations, you know. So, However, quite soon... When the material gets more technical, it often happens that the verbal version, the first version, it becomes so abstract that it's quite impossible to follow. It happens quite soon. Already in Euclid, Ken Saito has a recent paper on this, Traces of Oral Teaching in Euclid's Elements. If you want to go Google that, you can find Anyway, he takes as an example, for instance, Proposition 37 from uh, Book 3 of the uh, Elements. So... Uh, I'll read it to you here to just convince you how convoluted and unnatural it is to state this theorem in this purely verbal form. But Euclid insists on having that purely verbal version of all his propositions, no matter how useless they might be. So uh, let me read it to you. A Euclid statement of this uh, proposition. If a point be taken outside a circle, and from the point two straight lines fall on the circle, and if one of them cut the circle and the other fall on it, and if further, the rectangle contained by the whole of the straight line which cuts the circle and the straight line intercepted on it outside uh, between the point and the convex circumference will be equal to the square on the straight line which falls on the circle. The straight line which falls on it will touch the circle. That's quite difficult to follow. I'm not sure I even read it correctly there, all the, the, the intonations and everything to convey the underlying logical form. It's a big if-then statement. If this and this and this and this, then you have the conclusion that the straight line will touch the circle. That is to say that the, one of the lines is a tangent line. It's the conclusion of the thing. So, uh, of course, as always, Euclid immediately goes on to state the same thing, but in terms of the diagram. And that part is much easier to follow. It turns out to be a pretty straightforward uh, theorem. It's a kind of formula for the length of a tangent line. How far is it to the point of tangency from a given point outside the circle? It's like kind of almost algebraic expression for that that Euclid is presenting. Is, uh, you would hardly know that by reading the verbal statement, of course, which is quite uh, tricky. So for some reason, the Greeks insisted that uh, the verbal formulation should be one single rambling sentence. No matter how complicated your theorem is, you have to cram all the conditions, all the consequences, everything you want to say into one single sentence. So that's why it came out sounding so complicated. And this is actually, it even gets worse, you know, in, for uh, Apollonius, for instance, takes this stuff to absurd lengths. So I'll read to you an example here from the Conics of Apollonius. This is proposition 15 of the Conics, book one, one of the earliest propositions of that work. It only gets worse, you know. This is bad enough, I'm sure you will agree uh, when I read it to you. But keep in mind that that's only proposition 15 out of uh, several hundred. So the proposition that I'm talking about from the Conics Apollonius, it's a kind of a change of variables theorem for ellipses. It tells you what the equation is for an ellipse in a new coordinate system, conjugate to the first one. So this means that the proposition has to specify 
what the equation of the lips is sorry, in, the in the original coordinate system and then what the assumptions associated with that are and then how the change of coordinates is defined and then what the equation of the ellipse is in the new coordinate system after the transformation. And all of that has to be done in one purely verbal uh, statement and in one single sentence, one big if-then, you know. You gotta cram everything into one big if then clause, so you get this monstrosity of a sentence. It's completely crazy. So uh, it goes like this. Let me read it to you. If in an ellipse a straight line drawn ordinate wise from the midpoint of the diameter is produced both ways to the section, and if it is contrived that as the produced straight line is to the diameter, so is the diameter to some straight line. Then, any straight line which is drawn parallel to the diameter from the section to the produced straight line will equal in square the area which is applied to this third proportional and which has the breadth the produced straight line from the section to where the straight line drawn parallel to the diameter cuts it off, but such that this area is deficient by a figure similar to the rectangle contained by the produced straight line to which the straight lines are drawn and by the parameter. So that's the end of the theorem. What's going on with this crazy stuff, you know? Who can follow that? The Greeks, they had some kind of alien brains who could understand that type of thing? No, I don't think so. But when you encounter a theorem like that, surely they did not try to parse this one sentence in the abstract. Instead, they would turn to the diagram explication for help, just as Euclid always does, so also Apollonius goes on to restate the theorem in terms of the label points in the diagram. This explanation is not one big crazy sentence. It is instead very nicely broken into steps. First you'll introduce, okay, that's A, B, and then how is C defined? Okay, it's perpendicular, and then what's the next one? And so on. This is much more, uh, much easier to follow, much more systematic. At a certain point, we may ask ourselves, why even bother including this purely verbal formulation at all in the first place. It's so abstract, so difficult to follow. Surely any reader or listener will be uh, lost before you even got halfway through a sentence like that. And since you're going to restate the theorem immediately anyway, why bother? You know, you might as well only do the, the diagram version of the theorem. That's the one you're going to use for the proof anyway. Introducing all these points, A, B, C, they're the ones you're going to be constantly referencing. So why not just skip the verbal stuff and go straight for the uh, diagram explication. That's something of a puzzle in itself. But here's the real kicker though. Not only does Euclid insist on including the abstruse verbal formulation of every theorem, he in fact includes it twice. And this is because at the end of the proof, his last sentence is always, therefore, and then he literally repeats the entire verbal statement of the theorem. Literally the exact same statement, word for word, completely verbatim uh, repetition. Uh, you say the exact same thing when you state the proposition as you do again when you conclude the proof. Copy-paste, you know, the exact same text, just a few paragraphs uh, apart. It's quite astonishing. What a waste of papyrus, a scribal effort. This was an enormous cost uh, back then. There were no printing presses. You had to copy all of this stuff by hand. Writing materials were expensive. Copying was expensive. Preservation uh, was expensive. These people had every incentive to cut and keep things minimal. And yet they included this massive redundancy 
of repeating the rambling verbal statements of every proposition twice in short succession. So you may recall, for instance, that an important treatise by Archimedes was scrubbed off the parchment that it was written on because the parchment itself was so valuable, even recycled. So likewise, another indication of this, the economy of uh, of manuscripts is that uh, the medieval scribes, they were big on minimizing writing, for instance, with uh, acronyms and shortened uh, conventions. So, for instance, etc. You know, we we use this still today. We say E T C E G I E. You know those uh, shortened uh, expressions, shortened versions of Latin expressions. You know, all of this stuff. This was uh, those sh- ways of shortening uh, uh, writing were invented back in that time, in medieval times, when people were writing and copying manuscripts by hand. It's very understandable why they would want to minimize writing because it's so costly and uh, labor-intensive to do that stuff. So despite all of that, for some strange reason, including the entire verbal statement of the proposition twice, was somehow found valuable enough to warrant this huge cost. It's quite astonishing that the the, the geometrical manuscripts like that of the elements has this uh, absurd redundancy. So in the case of the... uh, Side angle side theorem, for instance, that I quoted, proposition four of the elements. In that case, the verbal statement of the theorem takes up about 15% of the total text of the proposition and proof. And then another 15% is taken up by the redundant recapitulation and conclusion at the end of the proof. So that's 30% of the total text of this proposition that could simply be cut. The remaining 70% of that text of that proposition would still contain the full statement of the theorem in, in with the the version of the theorem that is stated in terms of the diagram and of course the complete proof so that you could say if you think you know the temptation would be great to cut at least the last 15% of pure capitulation at the very least if not even the first 15% as well any case in fact, even the uh, the standard English edition of the elements by uh, by Heath, you know, the Dover uh, paperback, uh, is it simply writes therefore etc. at the end of each of the proofs instead of recapitulating the full statement. The orig- original document uh, has the full statement is not even with modern printed technologies. It's such a considered such a waste that you had just say therefore, etc. Just imagine how big of a waste it would have been back then when you would have to painstakingly copy the whole thing out by hand. So what was the the perceived value then of this very expensive business of repeating the full statement of the proposition? The oral tradition explains why this was valuable. The verbal statement of the proposition is like the chorus of a song. It's the key part, the key uh, message. It's the most important part to memorize. It's repeated for the same reason that the chorus of a song is repeated. It's the sing-along part of the proposition. In a written culture, you can refer back to propositions and expect the reader to have the text in front of them. Not so in oral culture. You need to evoke the memory of the proposition to an audience who does not have the text in front of them, but who do, however, learn the uh, propositions by heart, word by word, exactly as it was stated. It's the way you memorize a poem or the way you memorize a song. 
it's it's uh, the the exact wording matters in those situations. It's so also in ancient mathematics. This is why anytime Euclid uses a particular theorem at a particular point in a proof, he doesn't say, "Well, this follows by theorem eight, or, you know, any any any, uh, any such explicit reference to an earlier uh, proposition by any kind of label." Or number or name or anything like that. Instead, he evokes the earlier theorem by mimicking its exact wording. This is uh, the same way that uh, you just have to hear a few words of your favorite uh, chorus of some hit song or other, and then you're like, oh yeah, it's that one, and you can immediately just fill in the rest, you know? And so it was the same way back then, that the reader or listener of a Euclidean proof would immediately recognize certain phrasings as corresponding word for word to particular early propositions. And they would have memorized those propositions, not only the content, the mathematical content of the propositions, but in fact the exact verbal phrasing. Almost melodically, rhythmically, you would have that thing uh, stuck in your brain. Like here in the first few words of this, like a formula, the way it's phrased, that itself uh, would trigger the full memory to flow out kind of naturally, unstoppably, like you sing along to the chorus of a song you, you love. It's sort of involuntary, you know, you just you hear the, the beginning of it and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, you just jump right into, it just comes out, it's just natural. So it would have been that type of reaction when people were reading Euclidean proof and they heard certain key phrases in a certain particular pattern, then they're like, oh yeah, it's that one, you know, just the, and they would be able to uh, sing along just as we would recognize a, 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 one of our favorite songs by just by, uh, you know, a few notes it could be enough for us to be like, oh, it's that one, yeah. And you can see uh, an example of this stuff in action if you consider uh, Euclid's Proposition 5. So I spoke about uh, Proposition 4, the side-angle-side-triangle-congruence theorem. Euclid applies the side-angle-side theorem twice in the course of the proof of Proposition after it, Proposition 5. In fact, he only needs part of the theorem. If you recall, Proposition 4 included several things in, in its conclusion that the remaining sides were equal, that the remaining angles were equal, and that the areas of the two triangles are equal. Areas are completely irrelevant to Proposition 5. This is a statement purely about angles. The theorem is about angles, the entire proof is about angles, nothing to do with area whatsoever. But each time that Euclid applies the side-angle-side theorem in the course of the proof of Proposition 5, he nevertheless spells out the full conclusion. All of the stuff that he concluded in theorem form, he now spells out within the proof of Proposition 5, including this completely needless remark about the areas being equal. For more than that, actually, even in one case, it's even irrelevant that the sides are equal also. So uh, Euclid still needlessly remarks on this pointless information in the course of the proof of Proposition 5. Even though it has no logical bearing on the proof, what he really was interested in was uh, concluding stuff about angles, but since the theorem concludes things about angles and about sides and about areas, he just throws all of that out there. It's, those are just red herrings in the proof of Proposition 5. You, you could just strike those parts of the proof and wouldn't change the logic of the proof at all. So if you don't believe me, you go look up the, that nonsense for yourself. Proposition 5 of Euclid's Elements, you can easily find it. You can look up that place where uh, the second time Euclid 
applies the signing outside the theorem. Uh, ask yourself why, for instance, does Euclid say the base BC is common to the two triangles? The base BC is common. Look up that, find that phrase where Euclid uses it in the probe. You tell me why he's mentioning that the base BC is common. Completely pointless, completely redundant information. Logically, it, it just serves no purpose whatsoever. Euclid could have just omitted it, wouldn't have affected the proof at all. He's not using it for anything. It's it, from the oral point of view, it does make sense, though, because applying a theorem, it's a kind of package deal. You get the whole thing, whether you need it or not. Once you have triggered the memory of the previous theorem, which is appropriate, the kind of key phrase, then the whole conclusion comes kind of blurting out. Once you committed to singing the chorus, there's no going back. You can't sing only the particular part of the chorus that you need. That's not how this stuff works. The whole thing goes together. You memorize it as one flow. Once you hit play on that memory, you automatically run through the entire thing. This is why Euclid is needlessly talking about areas in this proof of Proposition 5, even though it serves no logical function whatsoever. It is because he's mimicking word for word the phrasing of the previous proposition that he's applying. He's filling in a specifics of the case at hand as he goes along to the uh, to the formulation of the, the side-angle side theorem that he's applying. You sing the chorus of the side-angle side theorem and you fill in the blanks. The, the purely verbal uh, statement of the side-angle side theorem, we spoke about sides, angles, and so on, completely abstractly, and then when you apply the theorem, uh, you repeat the exact same phrasing, but you insert A, B, B, C, F. Anytime it says side, you say side A, B. It says angle, you say angle B, C, F, etc. You fill in those things into the formula to specify what the sides and angles are in the particular case at hand. You can also do this with songs, you know. It's like singing happy birthday. There's the fill in the blank option in, in that song, isn't it? So you can go, happy birthday, dear Euclid, for example. Or you can put another guy's name, obviously. And in the same way with the geometrical theorems, you go, if the side A, B equals C, D, then the angle is, etc. Stuff like that. You know, this is kind of how the how you go about applying Euclidean theorems. You repeat the whole, the, the melodically, the exact phrasing of the original and put in the A, B, C, D, whatever you need as in, as, uh, you know, in the appropriate blanks. And that's what it means. As you know, basically all Euclidean proofs are like that. Uh, they consist of uh, the building blocks are uh, these kinds of sentences that repeat the wording of the proposition that they are applying, and then then they are adapted to the case at hand uh, because through the insertion into the blanks of specific sides and angles like A, B, etc. So here's perhaps another consequence of this: Euclid's formulation of the side-side-side triangle congruence theorem is quite peculiar. That's Euclid's proposition 8. So I told you about the side-angle-side uh, theorem, that's the, the earlier one, and in that case Euclid drew all the possible conclusions, as I mentioned. You can The conclusion includes things about sides, about angles, about area. So the theorem becomes kind of a mouthful, and it leads to the introduction of superfluous remarks any time the theorem is applied, because you have to repeat the, all the conclusions whether you need them or not. Now, to avoid this problem, it might be tempting to 
state theorems in less general form. And this is, in fact, exactly what Euclid does with the side-side-side theorem. He introduces asymmetry in the statement of the theorem. Instead of uh, three sides, he speaks of two sides and a base. And in his statement of the conclusion is that one particular angle, the angle between the two sides, is equal in both uh, triangles. But of course, it's completely arbitrary which side you choose to call the base. You can call another side the base and the other two the side. But the, tr the theorem, mathematically, obviously, it's clear to everybody, including Euclid and everybody in Euclid's audience, that, of course, it, it's a theorem about a triangle which has no particular... Uh, reason to distinguish one particular side as being different than the other two. It's a general... Th you can apply this however you like to, uh, to any triangle. There's no one guy is the base and the other one is the sides. That is just a matter of speaking that is introduces an asymmetry, a specificity that is not inherent, obviously, in the mathematical content. That's obvious to everybody. And yet Euclid chooses to do this to this way. Even with that, okay, even if you accept that terminology, there's still uh, way too much specificity in Euclid's uh, conclusion. You know, he could have just as well have concluded also that the other angles also correspond to one another in these congruence triangles. He drew the conclusion only for one of the angles in the triangle. Why not draw the conclusion about the other guys? And uh, Euclid chooses to arbitrarily limit uh, the generality of his theorem and introduce arbitrary specificity, arbitrary asymmetry. You'd think that would be anathema to a mathematician, you know? Why would you undermine the generality and power of the theorem in this way? It's crazy, isn't it? Well, if we think of the downsides of the way that he formulated the side-angle-side case, then we can understand why he went with this non-general formulation of the side-side-side case. In fact, anytime you're going to apply the side-side-side theorem, you probably want to conclude something about one specific angle, not all three angles of a triangle. If you formulate the theorem generally, then every time you applied it, you couldn't stop yourself, of course, from reciting the entire chorus, so to speak, and hence you would end up with one conclusion that you actually needed about one particular angle, and then you would needlessly spell out every time two other conclusions about the other two angles that you didn't want so this way you will only clutter your proofs with needless and irrelevant remarks. So the strangely specific, non-general formulation of the side-side-side theorem is actually well chosen, given this constraint that you have to repeat the full theorem verbatim anytime you apply it. So it's pretty fascinating, I think, how textual aspects that appear to be purely technical, purely mathematical, such as these kind of... Uh, barely noticeable superfluous bits of information the proofs of Proposition 5, that kind of stuff can actually be a window into an entirely uh, uh, an entire cultural practice can be reconstructed on the basis of these small details. That's very interesting. Isn't it? The oral tradition, it must have been there. And the best proof of, of this is hiding in the ABCDs of Euclid's formal texts. It is the, the beauty of history that historical texts can be read on so many levels. They carry so much hidden information about the culture that produced them. You would think Euclid's ultra-formalized uh, proofs, they would be the last place to find these kind of clues about cultural content, but here they are. We uh, Just a few propositions into the elements of Euclid, 
from the smallest technical quirks, we have already uh, recreated a rich picture of the ancient singing geometers, as it were, and the strange uh, culture in which uh, they worked. So, uh, well, let's keep reading, don't you think? It's an interesting book, this, uh, this stuff by Euclid. So, well, I'll tell you more about it uh, next time. Thank you.